0: Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 19. You may wonder why I show a video about unreached people groups when you're preaching on Psalm 19. And I hope by the end of this you'll see the connection. I believe it's a vital connection between the two. Psalm 19 is one of the most well-known of the Psalms. Like Psalm 1, like Psalm 2, like Psalm 119, like Psalm 51, like Psalm 62. This is a psalm that most of us know, at least in part, we have some idea about this psalm. And as I read it, you'll see how familiar it is. Psalm 19, to the choirmaster, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above are the expanse proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, or their measuring line, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun. Talking about the firmament, the sky above the expanse. In the skies above, he has set a tent for the sun, which becomes, comes out, the sun. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Huge shift now. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the new honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Response to this. Who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There are two great books of revelation which God has given to people around the world. The first is contained in verses 1-6. through 6, And it we might call general revelation. The first great book of theology is creation. If we look at this passage, it's very clear. Now, in other places in the Psalms, he'll talk about how all of inanimate creation sings to the glory of God. But look how he focuses in our passage specifically on the heavens. He says, the heavens. He's not talking about heaven where God is. He's talking about the heavens we see out of our windows right here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens do. What what does he mean by that? First of all, glory, as you know in the Hebrew, means weightiness. It means something of great value or worth is being presented. So what the heavens are doing is declaring that God is weighty. That God is glorious. Okay? That's what it says. How is it so? First of all, it declares that God is infinite because of the massive creation in which he created with no effort. The word handiwork is like needle pointing. It's like the little things, the, the small detail in a work of art. The brushstroke of God is the firmament we see with our eyes. It's just a just a flip of the wrist for God. It's nothing. The first thing that it declares to us is that God is infinite if He creates such a massive Thing called the firm. Now, how massive is it? You know, we, you've heard these kinds of analogies. I saw one that I thought was appropriate. They would help put it in my mind if I am trying to think of it. it maybe help children understand how massive this thing is that we're talking about. Now, everybody, take your Bible and flip up one page. Just flip up one page and hold it. Okay. The width of that paper, on the scale I'm using represents the distance between us and our sun, 93 million miles. On this scale, it's this one sliver of paper. You see it? If you took those and you turned pages up on their edge like this and kept stacking them 71 feet, that's the distance to the next closest star in our galaxy. If you wanted to go around the Milky Way, 100,000 light years around the galaxy that we exist in, that's like stacking these pages for 310 miles. That's how big it is. I'm not done. I got one more for you. Because I don't think I've blown your mind yet. If you reached out to the farthest extent of the known universe... That's just what we know. We haven't found the end of it. Nobody has gone, and then all of a sudden there was nothing to say, Well, that's it. I mean, this is as far as we can go with all of our technology and all of our great telescopes, as far as we can peer into the distance. 31 million miles of these papers would be stacked on edge. 31 million miles stacked on edge. To reach the known edge of the universe. It just happened to you, didn't it? The glory of God set in on you. That he said, Let there be stars in the heavens. And 31 million miles of these pages stacked on in later, at least the stars spread out. For every one star in our galaxy, there are at least... That's a hundred... Get this. There's there's at least in our galaxy, there are as many galaxies as there are stars in our galaxy. The heavens, the firmament, is declaring to us that God is big and that He is infinite and that He is weighty above everything else. That's first what it is declaring. Secondly, it is declaring that He is a good God. Now how is that? Now this is why I think David didn't, in this passage, talk about animals and whatnot because in that we may see God's justice or we may see the harshness of our world now that it's fallen. But what David points to is something that has no harshness to it. It's it's the beauty of it. When you walk out tonight and I pray you do, and I pray the sun, I mean the moon is evident and it's not covered. What will happen tonight will be the supermoon. It, will, it, will, it started last night, and its clearest picture to us will be tonight, the supermoon. It will look like, especially if you were in the countryside, it would look like you could just reach up and touch the moon. It's so big, okay? So there's no harm being done is the point. It's the goodness of God. When you lay on your back in the wilderness and look out above the expanse and think of how big and massive and good it is, it tells you that God is good. Thirdly, it tells you that God is beautiful. We get awestruck and we we are hit with majesty at this thing called the firmament. And it's it's just a blip on the screen of God's beauty and of the variety in which God operates and works. God's power and His infiniteness is shown to us in the firmament. God's God's goodness is shown to us in the firmament. The fact that we are not a couple of miles closer so that we would burn up, or a couple of miles away so that we would freeze to death, is the goodness of God. The fact that the planets all go on an orbit and they don't just randomly move around and run into each other is the goodness and order of God. The fact that we can look at the hues of the sky and the sunset and a sunrise, if you've ever stood at the edge of the ocean and looked off into the horizon as the sun was coming up and seen this great ball of fire rising seemingly out of the other side of the earth and thought, our God is mundane. You have a problem. Boy, our God is small. You have a big issue. One of the biggest problems in our world today is that we have lost touch with the first book of God's revelation. The first book is general, and it is the creation around us. And our children are losing touch with it, and we are losing touch with it. We're like lab rats moving around in an asphalt cage. Maze, trying to find cheese. And what we need is to reconnect with the glory of God in His creation. It's all around you, David says. It's pouring forth speech. You notice that? It's day to day and night to night. It's just constantly singing to you the glory of God. Constantly worrying out that God is big. Constantly giving witness to God is good and God is beautiful and God is infinite. It's just pouring it out and pouring it out and pouring it out. It never ceases. We get a little bit of this from Jesus when He's talking to the Pharisees. He, he enters the temple. For the last time and what do the little children do? They're all caught up in the furious moment of his entrance and how glorious it was that he came to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and he's fulfilling all these prophecies and the little four-year-olds and three-year-olds and five-year-olds are running around the temple saying what? Hallelujah. Glory to God. The Son of David has come. The Son of David has come. And the Pharisees say, and the rulers of the Jews say, hey, Jesus, do you hear what they say? Shut them up. Stop it! And what does he say? If I stop them, the very rocks of the ground will cry out to me. The glory of God being contained in this creation. Specifically the stars in our passage and the firmament that spans the millions and millions of light years that we can see tells us God is infinite God is gloriously good God is beautiful he is not mundane and God is simple therefore everything works on rhyme and reason he's not confused Nothing complicated or confused about God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We learn that. We can learn that from the seasons and the times of the day. You knew by calendar what the longest day of the year was going to be this year, didn't you? You know why? Because it's been the longest day of the year since God created the earth. Daylight time. I I know. My children, i slip and don't say daylight visibility to us. And my kids say, how does the world get... How does the day get longer, Daddy? And how does it get shorter? I mean, visibility to the daylight. Why? Because God set it up orderly. It didn't change the seasons of the year. Never changed. And you, in, in this part of the world, in part of the hemisphere, we get a lot of two seasons, right? And a little bit of two. But in, in general, it's the same. And it always has been since the flood. God has not changed the seasons of the year. He made that promise and he has never changed is the same yesterday today and forever we see that in the firmament in the handiwork of god it's pouring forth this speech to us it's revealing this knowledge to us it's not that verse 3 and says it's not that they're actually talking this is not animate inanimacy the wheat is not crying out to the harvester don't cut me that's not happening that's crazy liberalism The trees are not moaning because people are cutting them down using them to build houses. That's silly. That's not what it says. They don't have a voice, audible voice, but just their existence cries out to God. Just their processes to exist cry out to God's goodness. The fact is, this world is so complicated, it can't have gotten here any other way except through a wise creator. Science is finally waking up to this. By the hundreds world-renowned scientists are walking away from the evolutionary theory. You don't hear about it because it hasn't gotten to academia yet. I predict that within possibly my lifetime, but definitely maybe between my lifetime and my grandchildren, I think what's going to happen is the tide will turn. Not because they, create, they say that God, our God is the creator, but it's so lunatic-driven, it's so crazy what they propose, that I think even they are going to have to say, that's just not the way it happened. It didn't just poof come into existence and all by itself randomness. That's not how it happened. I don't know how it happened, but that ain't how it happened. I'm not willing to say Jehovah did it, but something. And they'll just create another God and worship it. But I'm just saying, it's too obvious. If you spend any time in it, it's too obvious that it's not just happening. It is not random. God has done it. And that's the beauty of the first book of theology. It never fails to speak about the glory of God. It never fails. Day after day, night after night, it's screaming out from its creative processes, this is our God. Okay, and then in verse 5, he, he, he condenses down to it one example for us. Because he's a good teacher, he's a good poet, and his example is the sun. Right? Now look how David talks about the sun. Now I know the image here, it's old, but it's still good, isn't it? I mean, it's like a man getting married. That's what the sun is like. When you're standing at the ocean, or you're standing in a wide open field, and you see the sun coming up, you need to think about this passage. The sun is not unwillingly doing what God created to do. It's willingly doing it. it, In other words, it's, it's not in rebellion in any way, David says. It's joyfully running its course. I think about, Aaron's not here, but I think about chariots of fire. Right? What's the most famous scene in that movie? The one I remember the most anyway. It's the one where he's running, right? The last race, and he's running, and he's running. And what does he do? He's running, and it's like every fiber inside of him is just screaming out to the glory of God. And he lifts his head back, you remember, in that most unorthodox pose of a runner. Nobody trains to run like he ran that race. His head is back to the heavens, his hair is flowing. He's running for what? The glory of God. He says, I was created to do this. It's what I do. I love it. The, that's what he's saying. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber to his bride. Nobody has to drag him to do it. He does it with joy. He does it with celebration. He does it with anticipation. He does it with excitement. That's the creation. It, it just does this thing joyfully. It's like a runner who loves to run and knows that's what God made him do. It's like Eric Lytle. He, he just a little. He just runs because he loves it. And it's what He's made to do. That's what the sun does. He says, listen, listen to me. The first book of theology never fails to do its job. It loves it. It joys in it. It exalts in God in it. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. There's not one person who can say they are without the witness of this general revelation. Every one of them. All of those unreached people groups have seen what we're talking about. All of them have. And the Bible says this in itself condemns them. Why? Take your Bible and turn, hold your place here and turn to Romans chapter 1. It's a very famous passage, but it's the easiest passage to make this point quickly with because it's so obvious what Paul does. Paul in Romans 1, 1 through 15 says... Basically, I'm on a gospel mission. This is my call. This is what I do. In verses 16 and 17, he defines what the power of the gospel is. It's salvation unto the Jews first and then the Greeks or the Gentiles. And it's captured by faith. But then he backs up and says, now wait a minute. It's like he, he said, that's my point, but hold up. What about those who've never heard? See, you thought you were the first person to ever asked that question, weren't you? What about the groups of people that are displayed here? The the almost one in three that have never heard about Jesus. What about them? What about them, preacher? What if they die? What about the infants that die? What about them? What happens to them? God condemns the unreached peoples. They never had a chance. They never had a witness. So Paul got that same question and he answered it very clearly. Look at what he says in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? The heavens declared the glory of God, God has shown it to them. It's plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his power and divine nature, what I've been describing to you, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are what? Say it. Say it. Do you believe it? Next time you want to know what happens to unreached people groups. You simply turn to Romans 1 and say, if they don't come to Christ, they go to hell. They go to hell. Why? Because God has been rejected. And they're cut off. And they're living in their sin." And they are suppressing the truth every day. What happens to that scientist in the room when he does the experiment and it happens all the time and he knows the answer, right answer is this is an orderly, reproducible event that had to be started by something orderly and personable, not randomness. And he simply says, I don't believe it. And walks away. He puts it up and says, I'm not reporting that. I'm not admitting that. That's what happens to unrighteous people. They suppress the plain truth that God has given. There is no excuse in our day. And it goes on to tell us about the sin, the wickedness of the world. And it all comes from this suppression of righteousness that we all are by nature are a part of. Without Christ, we all did it. Listen to me. There's no excuse for sure, for certain in the modern western world. There is so much clear evidence. It just cries out for a verdict. We I told Amy I wasn't going to do this but I can't resist. We went last night on a date, which is awesome. And we watched Superman, The Man of Steel. I thought it was very interesting how they worked in, because in the comic books they couldn't do this because the science wasn't quite there yet, but they worked in the modernness of Superman in this story. I'm not going to run it for you. Just this one part, i got to tell you. Did you notice all the information that was contained in the cells of the people from Krypton? All that information inside the cells that they kept seeing on their little hologram screen? the discovery of th- something called dna begs an answer how did it randomly happen and how did it randomly happen that not only is there sh- chains of information contained in this every cell that tells every cell what to do when to do it how to do it and how long to do it not only that but also genetic flaws that live They talk about evolutionary... All the genetic flaws don't live. I mean, don't, don't die. They don't all die. If they did, your skin wouldn't be the color it is. It would have already adapted completely. And there would be no more need of suntan lotion. But the fact is, is that God created us differently, in different ways. and He wired the body to do certain processes, certain ways, every time. And so, we see... That the thing like the eye, the human eye, comes into existence, which is evolutionarily impossible. It can't work. In a simple step-by-step process, it had to all happen. And it's just impossible. I mean, just, just the eye is enough. The firmament is enough. But just the human eyeball cannot be explained through evolutionary process through any other process except that a creator created it, and it is this knowledge that is suppressed, which leads to idolatry, which leads to judgment and the wrath of God. That's the first book of theology, and it's in those first six verses, very plainly put and very eloquently put and very convincingly put. But he doesn't stop there. He moves to verses 7 through 11. The second great book of theology happens, and it is the specific revelation of God in the Scriptures. He says, God didn't stop with a witness to Himself in the creation, but He spoke not only in creation, but spoke in His Word. Our God is a communicating God. He is is one who wants you to know Him. So He places it all over the creation. And then, that's not enough, He gives us His Word. So that we're left with even less, with no excuse. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now don't get Here's the mistake that sometimes is made. People start trying to divvy out these words and and say different look the point here is not the tree the point is the forest. What David is trying to say is it is complete. The word of God is perfect. It's complete. It's enough. There are seven combinations that go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, telling us that David is what David is saying. He's saying it's perfect, it's complete. The Word of God leaves no room for doubt. If the first book, general revelation, didn't convince you, the second book of specific scriptural revelation should convince you. The law of the Lord is perfect, doing what? Reviving the soul. So it's not just that God cares to let you know, but he cares to make you alive. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Taking simple, dumb, ignorant people and making them wise. The testimony of the Lord is such to do this. The precepts of the Lord are right, doing what? Rejoicing the heart. He makes you alive, he makes you wise, he makes you rejoice he makes your eyes bright, makes them see. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It never ceases. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. What he's saying in that section, verses 7 through 9, is that God's word is enough, God's witness is complete. He gave you two great witnesses creation. And the word. And it is enough. But he doesn't stop there. He goes through this very technical back and forth to show us how good God's word is. But I don't think it can be any better said than verses 10 and 11. Because he then goes to a hedonistic desire. God made every one of us hedonist In our core we're all hedonists. You say, I'm not a hedonist. Yes, you are. You most certainly are. What is a hedonist? Simply put, goes after his own happiness. He goes after his own happiness. Every single human that ever graced the planet was going after their own happiness. And God made us this way. He made Adam that way. It's not part of the fallen world. Hedonistic philosophy is is a part of the fallen world. But the hedonist desire to make oneself happy is in the original creation. Why? Because His desire is that you find your happiness where? In Him. God made humans to want happiness so they would want Him. And David does it in the Word. He says, the Word of God is better than gold. And it's sweeter than honey. He picked two things that men lust after. Gold, riches, he picked that, and he picked the delight and the glory of his day in food tasting, honey. Not just any honey, not just leftover honey, not honey that's fallen ground, but honey that you reach in, pull the hive out, and it's the fresh honey that drips right from being newly made. It not been tainted with anything. It's perfect. He says, that's the Word of God. God took us, put hedonist desires inside of us. That hedonism was entirely intended to be projected onto Him. And now, that is the Word. We long after the Word. We are people of the Word. People say, why do you read the Bible so much? Why do you study the Bible so much? There's so much more in life than the Bible. There's nothing more in life than his word. Nothing more important in life than his word. No book better suited to set your soul aflame than his word. The longing of the soul of the Christian is to know God in his word. That's what David's saying. It's more valuable than gold. And it's sweeter than honey. There's nothing like it. And it makes you wise. It warns the servant of God. So we have these two great witnesses. And what is the response? Verses 12-14. through 14, The clear response that every one of us should have to these two great books of theology. One response. Repentance and rejoicing. Who is it that knows his own errors? This is hidden sin. Now, it's not hidden in the fact that he it's hidden from others. It's hidden from him. He doesn't know it's sin. What I'm doing, I don't know it's sin. You ever been there? I've been there, been doing something, is a habit of mine and going along, and then all of a sudden I'm reading in the Word, or a friend, a Christian brother comes and says, Why do you do that? Well, this is why I do. It. Well, did you know that's an affront against God? No, I, I had no clue. So what David first says is, God, make me, make me aware, declare to me what I'm doing so that I might be innocent of hidden faults. The first category is unknown sin. Unknown not to the others in the world, but unknown to me things I don't consider sin I think about a friend of mine in college who came to know Christ he was living with his girlfriend at the time and he he had no clue it's all, all he'd ever done is live with his girlfriend since he was 18 years old when he came to Christ it took him about a month of reading God's word studying I didn't say anything to him about it other Christian friends said tell him tell him not to do it I said just be patient let's pray for him let's keep Pushing him in God's word. Finally, one day he came in the cafeteria. Why is a ghost? I said, what's wrong with you, man? You all right? Something happened bad? He said, man, I've been sinning. I said, you have? Yeah, like what? I'm living with my girlfriend. That's a sin. Did you know that was a sin? Yeah, I knew it was a sin, man. I've been praying for you. What are you going to do about it? He said, man, i got to get out of there. i just got to stop this. I need to live somewhere. He lived on my couch for two semesters. Because God's word showed him what was hidden to him. He didn't know. He had no idea. He hadn't been raised in Christian home. He hadn't been raised around those kinds of mores. And so he didn't know it was wrong. But when God made it known to him, he declared to him, he ran from it. He ran from it. And that's just a big, there's little things every day. There's a second category of sin that we should repent from, and that's known sin. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. This is a sin that I know is wrong and I choose to do it anyway. Now, I'll just tell you, if that's the pattern of your life, I don't believe you are a Christian. If the pattern of your life is, I know this is a sin, I'm going to do it anyway, you're not a believer. 1 John says that. Okay, But there are times and seasons and days and hours in our life where we know something is wrong and we just do it anyway. David says, use your word to keep me back from that kind of sin. Convict me of that kind of sin. Don't let me do it. Don't let it have dominion or rule over me in a lifestyle pattern. Keep me away from it, God. That's his call. That's his desire. The first response is repentance. The second response is rejoicing. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer, What a beautiful, this is a joyful response. It's not begrudgingly letting go of sin, but lovingly letting go of sin. It's not not hating God's Word and hating to have to be in God's Word. It's desiring to be there. With every fiber of David's being, he's saying, that's what I want. I want to meditate on it. I want it to come out of my mouth when I speak. I want it to be acceptable to you. And David gained this through the revelation of God in creation and the revelation of God in the Torah, in the scripture of his day. So how does this pertain to us and what specific thing can we say in regard to our lives? I would say, first of all, that we need to regain a glorious respect and awe of God in his creation. We need that. We need to spend some time in God's creation. Away from man-made distractions. To just soak in. Jonathan Edwards used to say that was the main way he fought against sin in his life. Was he went out into God's creation. He was often tempted to sin and then he would go out in the fields and ride and spend time breathing in the fresh air. And it would save him, in a sense, from those sins. Secondly, I think we need to regain in our own hearts and mind the joy of God's Word. And the value of God's Word. Not just begrudging Bible readers. Not check it off the list people. But people who run to it. That desire it. That long for it. How does that happen? The final application of this sermon can't be made in any other way except to Christ. Because there's the general revelation of God they spoken of in the first six verses. There's the specific way that God revealed Himself in the second, 7 through 11. But the rest of the Bible tells us there's a special way in which God revealed Himself. Specifically and specially in His Son, Hebrews tells us, in various ways and in various times, God spoke to our fathers in the past, but in this day, in our day, He has spoken to us in His own Son. Wrapped up in creation, and the Word is the living Word of God. God incarnate. And so, we can't have the reverence and respect and love and passion and joy for God that we need unless we have Christ. And unless you're looking to the creation for Him to see His beauty, and you're looking to the Word to see His actions and His calls and His demands, you can't love God. You can't love God in Christ. Final application is the reason for the video. I told you I hope to make it clear. So we have one in three people living in our world today that have that first revelation of God. It's enough to condemn them but not enough to save them. What we need is a move among evangelical Christians to reach that one in three people with the special and specific revelation of God in His Word and in His Son. And that doesn't start with one or two of us saying, hey, I'm going to go over there. That starts with all of us saying, I'm on that team. I'm on that call. How? By prayer. I would I would push to you the Joshua Project. They created this video, but they have people group every day. They'll send it to you on Twitter. They'll send it to you on Facebook. You can go to their website. You can buy the book. If you're not into technology, you can buy the book. And they break it up by the day. Pray for these people today. Pray these specific things for these people today. Every single Christian in this room can be a part of God sending the special and specific revelation of Himself to these people. Every one of us. No exception. By giving. Uh, you missed Sunday school. A lot of you did. I taught on giving. Listen, 90% of our resources are being spent on people who already have a gospel witness and already have churches. There's nothing wrong with that. As I said, some work still needs to be done in these peoples. But why is it that the most of what we do is in the known world rather than in the really unknown? Why? One cent out of every hundred dollars? Spent on people that are every one of them when they die go to hell? I mean, well, this has to change, right? This has to change. Now, you say, how do you get that? And what kind of authority do you have to say that? I don't like that, Pastor. I, honestly, I can't wait to this question and answer time because I'm going I'm to let you have it. Would you, before you unleash the canon, Romans chapter 10 as we close. I got it because that's what Paul got. Romans chapter 10. Paul is broken, as he always is, over the lostness of his people, the Jews. And he, he talks about the laws given by Moses and how that... That the righteousness based on working hard in the law is not sufficient. It will not save you. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ from the dead. But what does it say? What does the word of faith in the heart say? The word we're proclaiming in the gospel, what does it say? Because it says... The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no one, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A many a sermon has been preached and stopped right there. But look what he says in verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In context to the people who have never heard the good news. That's who he's talking about. People who have not a viable witness to them. They need to hear. And so he's saying this, but look what he says. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. You with me? How will they call on the one they haven't heard? And how will they call uh, no hear unless they have a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? You're sent, that's what Paul's saying, to these people. You're sent to them. So the, the sending is not from me or the church, it's from God. But they don't all believe. He says, No. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 19, 4. What's he saying? What does he mean? Get this. Paul's saying the creation, the firmament, is doing what God made it to do. Day after day, night after night, it pours forth the speech of God's glory. So we, Paul is saying, We Christians need to be the same way. We need to take, our voice must be heard throughout the nations with the gospel. Next time you see the sun rise, you think, is the gospel around the globe yet or not? It's not, how am I a part of it? That's what Paul does with Psalm 19.4. He makes it an evangelistic press. He says, they don't know Christ, why? Not because of the creation. It hasn't failed to tell them about the power of God. But, but we have failed to take the Word of God to all of the world. So we should be going, sending, praying, giving. This should be our call. This should be our application of the general, specific, and special revelation of God. We're going to do more with it. We're not done. We're done with Psalm 19. But we're, that, that nugget will come back in some other sermons and in some other ways. What it, would it look like if this people, if us, here at Grace Fellowship, became burdened for one group? One group. There's about 250 men, women, and children in this congregation. You say, what can we do? We're not all going to go, are we? We're not all going to go live in tribes with people that have never heard are we? No. What can I do then? First of all, we can all be praying. That's a lot of prayer warriors. Praying. And what if we got a burden for one group? Out of that whole 6,000 people groups, we just got one. And we said, that's our group. We're going to pray for them. And we're going to give. And what we're going to do is give specifically for these things. We're going to give to send a team. We're gonna give, or you say, we're gonna give to have a Bible translation in those people's tongue. You know, there are whole Bible translations waiting to be launched because they don't have the funds yet to launch them. They're sitting on a desk, they're ready to go, they don't have the money to do what it takes to do it. They've coded the language, all they gotta do is take it and make it work, but it's hours and hours and hours of laborious work for somebody that has to be paid to do it. And then it has to be printed. Then it has to be transported. Then it has to be disseminated. All of that's waiting on the funds to get it done. What if we committed and said, that's a, that, that's a goal. The we're gonna, we're gonna, next five years, we're going to fund a Bible translation to these people. You know, I can't go. You don't have to. Give. Pray. Be broken. And some will go. Some of us will go. Some of us will rise up. Take it where it hasn't been. Listen. Don't let the sun outdo you. Don't let the moon beat you. They're doing their job. They're declaring the glory of God. Let us be people that declare His glory and His gospel to the ends of the earth.